And if you were here with us last week, you know that we are reading Leviticus together this semester. So why in the world would um, we venture there? Why would we read Leviticus? So what I said last week, um, one of the reasons we're doing this is because Leviticus is our culture's argument as to why um, we shouldn't believe in Christianity. Um, I mentioned uh, last week I had a friend who went to go see Nick Offerman um, in his stand-up, and he pulled out a Bible, and he read from Leviticus, and he said, this is absurd. If this is what they believe, this is at best laughable, at worst dangerous. Um, It's the reason that our culture gives to ignore the Bible, to throw out Christianity. And for Christians, if you're a Christian and you're here, um, you probably haven't read Leviticus. Or if you have, you've stumbled through it because of all of the intricate details and the strange rituals. And um, it's just so culturally distant from us because it's so old. Um, there's, there's a lot of things in it that are confusing. Um, but uh, as I read last week this quote from this commentator, Tidball, he said, Without Leviticus, the New Testament would be a house without a foundation. So this is integral uh, to the Christian faith. And so um, I I closed last week by saying if we can find meaning in this book, then perhaps we can trust all of it, all of Scripture, to direct our lives. So this week we are going to be reading the first chapter of Leviticus. It's printed on your orange sheet. And um, we're going to be talking specifically about sacrifices um, today. So you can follow along here. I'm going to read this to us. This is Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of God. Um, He gives it to us because he loves us, and it is completely true. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring into the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. They shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar. As a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw its blood against the sides of the altar. He shall cut into pieces with its head and its fat. And the priest shall arrange them on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But his entrails and the legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall offer all of it and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt offering. A food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. And the priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall remove its crop with its contents and cast it beside the altar on the east side in the place for ashes. He shall tear it open by its wings, but shall not sever it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar on the wood that is on the fire. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is the word of the, the, word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Uh, Father, we thank you for this, and we ask that you would help us to make some sense of it um, tonight, and that in it we would see your grace and kindness and your provision for us. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so for what I'm going to... Sh-
share with y'all tonight, I'm thankful to a former RUF campus minister, a guy named Les Newsom, who I am borrowing heavily from tonight. Much of what I'll say, he said first. Um, this passage um, begins like many conversations in my marriage. I often hear something like this. When you finish doing the dishes, John, I want your help painting the bathroom. Um, right? the, ab- the emphasis here is on the absence of the if. Not if you finish, when you finish. Maybe you heard this when you were a kid. Your dad's saying, when you finish mowing the grass, I need your help in the garage. Not if you finish, when you finish. Um, when you offer a sacrifice, this is what God says. Sacrifice is at the heart of how God relates to his people. Sacrifice is assumed. And if you're honest, you'll acknowledge that this is really weird. What I just read to us is very strange. It even sounds strange to my ears. Animal sacrifice is strange. It is, a le- it is illegal in the state of North Carolina. I Googled it. Um, and Leviticus is written into a culture where not only was animal sacrifice legal, it was a normal part of everyday life. And this passage reads to us like an instruction manual for animal husbandry. And because of this, we often forget that it comes to us in a larger story. Um, the larger story, what we have in Leviticus is God is addressing a people who he has just rescued from 400 years of slavery. Through Moses, God delivers delivers Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness, which is where they are now. And here in this first chapter, God gives the description of the fundamental expression of sacrifice that will form the foundation for every other religious act that people will perform for him. And this sacrifice is called the burnt offering, or in Hebrew, the challah offering. And we're going to walk through the details of this sacrifice that we have here in Leviticus 1. Um, And I want to do this because we'll see that God is saying something profound in each detail. So first, the offering was to be male without blemish. Male animals, for whatever reason, were more valuable, and especially if they lacked deformities. So this is a costly sacrifice for the person making the offering. God is saying that the greater the cost, the greater the love. You understand this. We understand this. The greater the cost, the greater the love. I had a friend in Richmond who, when he went to his then-girlfriend's dad to ask for his blessing to marry his daughter, um, the dad said, if you want to marry my daughter, you have to build me a canoe. So um, I'm so glad Mary Clark's dad didn't ask me this because we would not be married because I don't know how to build a canoe. Um, but so, so Jay spent months. He's a fine woodworker, and he built this absolutely gorgeous canoe and so his, his father, his future father-in-law, knew what was happening, right, when he pulled into the driveway, pulling or the canoe strapped to the roof of his car. Um, the point of this is that his wife, Kristen, her dad was saying to him, show me how much you care about my daughter. Do something costly. And so by requiring a male without blemish, God is saying the same thing. I want you to care about me the most. I am to be supremely valuable to you. Now, and remember that asking this, God has already demonstrated to them how valuable they are. He has rescued them out of Egypt, out of 400 years of slavery, so that he might display his love to them, and he might display his love to the world through them. So the offering was to be a male without blemish. And second, the offerer was to lay their hands on the head of the animal. Look at verse 4 with me. I put it in bold on the bulletin. It says, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for, the work, for him. And, and this word for laid is, is literally to lean upon. So he's saying, bring your animal to the entrance of the tent and lean your hands on it. And the, the purpose of this was to establish some sort of relationship with the animal. 
so that the animal would be accepted on the offerer's behalf. And this would have signaled two things. It would have signaled transfer and identification. So by leaning hands on the animal, he'd be saying, I need a substitute. I need someone or something to die in my place. This is a really powerful statement. See, if a Jewish person took this seriously, they would have to admit that at any given moment of their day, God was saying that they deserve death. And the sacrificial system was a constant reminder of this. We'll read later in Leviticus that the fire on the altar never goes out. It's always burning, always reminding God's people that there is no access to God without an intermediary. There's no access to God without a substitute. One commentator puts it this way. He says, the whole sacrificial system reinforced the central component in Jewish worship. I am holy and you are not. God is saying to take me seriously means that you need to take your need for a stand-in, your need for a substitute, seriously. This is foreign to us. Right? And for some of you, this is even grotesque. But consider this. Consider this. Perhaps the reason this is foreign to us is because you think that relating to God is like relating to anyone else. Your conception of God is that he wants you to be good. And if you're good, he'll make your life comfortable. Right? He's more like a vending machine than anything else. But consider this. The Bible tells us of a God who is infinitely high in his holiness and tells us that we are infinitely low in our sinfulness. And if that is who God is, and that's who we are, then this sacrificial system starts to make sense. All right, so we've got a male without blemish. The offerer leans his hands on the head of the animal. And then the animal would have its throat slit, and the priest would take the blood of the animal and throw it against the altar. So why all the blood? All right, it's funny. In our sterilized culture, the thought of blood in everyday life makes us squeamish. Blood is for hospitals. Um, or movies, or video games, not for everyday life. And yet, blood is everyday life. We need blood. We need lots of it. Um, Mary Clark and I are reminded of this weekly because we get phone calls from the American Red Cross telling us to donate blood, and we just keep forgetting to schedule to do that. So we get a phone call from a Charlotte area code every week with a voicemail telling us to donate blood. Why? Because people die without blood. Blood is, in a way, it is life. And so for the sacrifice, the blood represented the very life of the animal. And by demanding blood, God is saying, life can only be paid for with its own currency. Your sin has robbed the world of its life, so in exchange, another life must be offered. And then we're given three categories of offerings in this chapter. Offerings of the herd, for these big, expensive animals. Of the flock, smaller, less expensive animals. And finally, birds which are small, inexpensive animals. These are different animals depending on your economic situation. This is beautiful. God is saying that he's not going to keep anyone from having fellowship with him because of economic barriers. If you don't have a bull, use one of your lambs. And if you don't have a lamb, then go find a bird. God will not let money separate separate him from his people. He will not have the poor feeling excluded. And finally, this offering was then placed on the altar and completely consumed by fire. Now, in other offerings, the meat is merely cooked. But here, it's to be completely burned up. The offering is to be completely incinerated. Why? Well, God is saying that in order for sinners to be fully accepted into his presence, nothing less than a full sacrifice is required. 
In other words, God is letting the offerer know that they are fully accepted because of the full commitment of the animal. Brian Habig, who's a former RUF campus minister, asks this great question of the sacrifice. He writes, what would an Israelite who woke up in the middle of the night, who walked out of his tent and toward the center of camp, what would he think? He would see smoke rising up to heaven. He would smell the constant cooking of an incinerated meat, half pleasant, half bitter. He would have been constantly reminded of the goodness of knowing God and of the bitterness of his own sin. He would have been developing a worldview that affected the way in which he made every decision in life. Now, the New Testament book of Hebrews explains to us that none of these sacrifices were intended to be the sum total of God's interactions with his people. But rather that in Jesus, God has finished and completed what is pictured and repeated in these Old Testament sacrifices. And we see Jesus in this sacrifice in at least four ways. First, um, the sacrificial system in Leviticus went on in perpetuity. Hebrews tells us that those sacrifices can never make perfect those who draw near. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. One commentator says that this sacrificial system in the Old Testament is like writing a check. The purpose of the check is to cover the debt of sin. The form of the check was animal sacrifice, whose blood was given in the place of the sinners. And the Lord, in his grace, received the check and declared the debt paid, graciously assuring forgiveness to the offerer. But he didn't cash it. He does not cash the check. Because in the grand scheme of things, it's not possible for the blood of an animal to fully ransom the blood of a human. To return to the analogy, the check would have bounced. So why did God receive it as payment at the time? Because he knew that one day there would be money in the account to cover the debt. Namely, when Jesus gave his blood as the perfect and final ransom for the blood of sinners. Second, we see that the burnt offering is wholly offered. It's completely consumed. Um, This burnt offering, the challah offering, um, this is where we get the word holocaust. The point is that Jesus was completely consumed on the cross, and he did so willingly to give us security. It's a little like the bird hunter who is hunting with a friend in wide open barren land in southeastern Georgia. And far away on the horizon, he notices a cloud of smoke. smoke. Soon he can hear the sound of the crackling. A wind comes up and he realizes the terrible truth. There's a brush fire advancing his way. And it's moving so fast that he and his friend cannot outrun it. The hunter begins to rifle through his pockets. Then he empties all the contents out of his knapsack. And he soon finds what he's looking for, a book of matches. And to his friend's amazement, he pulls out a match and he strikes it. And he lights a small fire around the two of them. And soon they're standing in a circle of blackened earth, waiting for the fire to come. And they don't have to wait long. They cover their mouths with their handkerchiefs, embrace themselves, and the fire comes near and sweeps over them. But they were completely unhurt. They weren't even touched because fire will not pass where fire has passed. The judgment of God is like this brush fire. We cannot escape it. But if we stand in the burned over place where God has already judged, then we will not be hurt. The death of Christ is this burned over place. He became the ultimate burnt offering. Third, we see that leaning on this sacrifice implied dependence on it. It's an act of faith. And I know how confusing faith is. Um, I was trying to describe faith to Leo, my five-year-old son, last night at the dinner table. And Mary Clark looks at me and is like, stop. 
you're doing an awful job. Just quit while you're ahead. Um, or behind. I was just confusing him when I was trying to describe faith. And as Christians, we get confused about faith. We talk about it. We sing about it. But often what happens is we try, end up trying to evaluate it, right? Do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Is my faith too weak? And the point of our passage is that by simply being commanded to place one's hands on, or to lean on an animal, we're taught that it's not our leaning that saves us. It's not our faith that saves us, but the sacrifice. Horatius Bonar, who was a 19th century Scottish hymn writer, he wrote this. He said, what should we have said to the Israelite who should puzzle himself with questions as to the right mode of laying his hands on the head of the animal? And who should refuse to take any comfort from his sacrifice because he was not sure whether he laid them right or on the proper place or in the right direction or with adequate pressure or with the best attitude. Should we not have told him that his own actions concerning the lamb were not the lamb? And yet that's what he was speaking about as if they were. Should we not have told him to be of good cheer not because he had laid his hands on the victim in the most approved fashion but because his hands had touched the victim? However, lightly and imperfectly, and therefore said, let this lamb stand for me, answer for me, die for me. The touching hand has no virtue in itself. The quality or quantity of faith is not the main question for the sinner. His point is that for many of us, we actually put our faith not in the bleeding sacrifice, but in our own faith. We are trusting in our ability to trust, and in doing so, we're missing Jesus. So where is your faith? Is it in your ability to believe, or is it in the one who gave his life for you? And fourth, and finally, um, we see this. We see in Ephesians, which is a letter in the New Testament, in the fifth chapter, Paul says, Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I don't know if you heard the refrain at the end of each description of the sacrifice, of the offering, um, but we are told that the burnt offering is a pleasing aroma to the Lord, a fragrant offering, a pleasing aroma. This is what God smelled on the altar. God delighted in the sacrifice. I just want you to imagine God being delighted, satisfied, finally and fully. Um, this is what is pictured here. In his book, The Reason for God, um, Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. He mentions a, a Christian conference in, a conference in which one speaker says this. He says, I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all. I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. Um, his point was that we need to concentrate on God being a God of love, one who is full of peace and kindness, and that the violent images that we have in the Bible are primitive or offensive or do not accurately depict God. And this is how Keller responds. He writes this. He says, in a real world of relationships, it is impossible to love people with a problem or a need without, in some sense, sharing or even changing places with them. All real life, all real life changing love involves some form of this kind of exchange. What is he saying? Think about the last time that you attempted to be there for an emotionally broken person. A time when you really wanted to show someone else genuine care and concern. And there is no way to really do that person any good if you yourself don't get emotionally drained in the process. Otherwise, they're not going to be helped. Love requires sacrifice. Mary Clark and I are learning this viscerally with our small children. Marriage and children, perhaps more, than, more powerfully than any other relationships, teach us that love is not a feeling. Love is an action. 
Now imagine if Mary Clark and I always told our kids that we loved them, but we never fed them. We told them we cared about them, but we never bathed them. We never read to them. We never changed their diaper. We've got words for this, criminal abuse and neglect. It's a felony. Um, It's because we understand both on a visceral level and a societal level that real love requires sacrifice. Because without sacrifice, there is no relationship. Les Newsom adds one idea to what Keller is saying here. He says that the degree of sacrifice demanded of me in order to have a relationship with someone is always dependent on the inherent realities that reside in that person's greatness or or their smallness. So for example, if one of you calls me tomorrow morning and says, I need you, I have a certain expectation of the sacrifice that our relationship is going to demand. But if Captain America calls me in the morning and says, I need you, then the sacrifice I'm going to have to make are far greater than what would have been expected of me from someone who's closer to my station in life. This is true not only for greatness, but also for smallness. If someone comes into my office and says that um, they've been struggling with using bad language this month, can you help me? I have an expectation of what's going to be asked of me. But if someone comes in and says, I've been gripped in the patterns of addiction to drugs for years, then I'm going to be expected to make a far greater sacrifice for that person. Right? It will ask more of me. So here's the point. What happens then when the phone calls from God, a person of infinite greatness, to a person like me, a person of infinite smallness? Now, it's almost understandable to be put off by the weirdness, the strangeness of this whole sacrificial system until you understand that God really means to be in communion with you. He longs to be in a relationship with you that is more than merely theoretical. Here's what I'm getting at here. People who say that they don't get the sacrificial system and then claim that Christianity is is primitive because of it, they're not thinking clearly. Because love always requires a sacrifice. Now, for many of you, um, college is the first time in your lives that you are experiencing the reality of that truth, that love requires sacrifice. You sacrifice for people you love, and perhaps the relationship is ended. And now you feel the pain and the scarring of that relationship. And maybe you see that if that relationship is to be whole again, it's going to require sacrifice. Either you or the other person is going to have to give up a whole lot of pride or their anger or their hurt in order for that relationship to be healed. And the fact that God demands the life of another in order for us to enter into relationship with him and ultimately gives the life of his own son for us shows us this. It shows us that he wants to be in a real relationship with us, a relationship that is intimate, that is vulnerable, that is genuine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you um, both require sacrifice and you provide it. We thank you um, for the provision for your people when they're in the wilderness and your provision for your people now in Jesus Christ, that you have provided all that we need um, to be in relationship with you. Lord, would you uh, draw praise from us um, because you are so good and kind to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We're going to sing one more song.